Hello, everybody. Welcome to The Art of Listening. My name is Jeff Bradbury. This is a brand new podcast for classical music fans, musicians, and anybody interested in learning exactly what goes on when you listen to a piece of music. We've got a great program today talking about three famous symphonies, what makes them, who composed them, how they were composed. And with me is my co-host, Mr. Gabriel Gordon. Gabe, how are you today? Welcome to The Art of Listening. Thanks so much, Jeff. I'm really, really looking forward to this. It's going to be a lot of fun. You know, me too. I've been enjoying all the great content that's been put out on your website. Uh, Since this is episode one, tell us a little bit about yourself. Oh, well, all right. Uh, Originally from New York, I was from a uh, family of musicians, and I kind of caught the bug early at, at the age of six. And really, when I started playing in ensembles a little bit later, I realized just how music really connects people and can bring peace to people and started playing professionally when I was uh, about 14 years old. And when I went to college, I went to Temple University and I started uh, a string quartet called the De Ponte Quartet. And then after college, I played in a group called the Excelsior Trio and I started conducting. I've been music director of Uh, amateur orchestra and student orchestras, as well as professional orchestras. Um, I've also started four, now four successful nonprofit organizations. And now I do YouTube videos, solo concerts and podcasts here in Ogden, Utah. And we've got a great lineup of all this stuff. And you said that all of your uh, content that you're creating right now is over on your website. What is that website for everybody, Gabe? It's gabrielgordon.net. And uh, you can find the YouTube channel at uh, Gabriel Gordon, The Art of Listening. And of course, we want to say one more time, welcome to you guys. This is episode one. We've got a great podcast lined up. And of course, you can find this show on all of our podcasting platforms from Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, wherever you find your podcast. That is where you can find The Art of Listening. And Gabe, you know, podcasting and classical music, two things that kind of go together, right? This is the medium where people can just get in their car, put on their headphones and really have a personal connection with music. Yeah, I, it's it's a, a great way of just finding out more about uh, the pieces that you love to listen to. Now, we are both musicians, as, as I'm sure you are out there if you're listening to this show. And, you know, we've both played in various orchestras sitting in the middle. I was a viola player. You're a violinist. And, and I noticed that you get a different um, opinion of what a piece of music sounds like if you're sitting in the orchestra, listening in the audience, even standing up and conducting it. But when you put those headphones on, when you sit down and you listen to something in an intimate situation, it really is a different type of atmosphere. And I know we're going to talk a lot about that on this show. I want to first start off and say, when you say the art of listening, what exactly does that mean? What are we going to be talking about on this program? Well, we're going to be talking about listening to music primarily, but also listening in general on an artistic level and what that means for listening to music, but as well what that can mean for you as well as society in general. 
Now, there's a lot of misconceptions that we're also going to talk about over the next couple episodes. And, and if you have any questions, please feel free to reach out. You can go over to GabrielGordon.net and you can always check out all the different archives, join the mailing list and find out all about these great things. But Gabe, today we're going to talk about three symphonies, right? And, and I think a lot of people look at the word symphony and I know that not only do they might not know exactly what it means, they might just use the term in relationship to classical music, you know, Hey Gabe, play me a symphony, but, but let's just kind of start here and kind of dive in when we're looking at the word symphony, what exactly does that mean? If you were totally layman's terms here to, to, to music people. Well, first to, to clear up one, you know, kind of misconception, there is a symphony, which is the group that performs symphonies, so to speak, uh, a, a group of people that performs these works can be called a symphony, it can be called a philharmonic, it can be called a camerata, it can be called lots of things, but usually it's called a symphony. But a symphony in terms of what the pieces that that group performs generally is uh, an extended musical work uh, for an, a large ensemble. And generally it has four separate but uh, they're usually related sections, and those sections are called movements. And that's essentially what a symphony is in very loose terms. Now, the word symphony came around, uh, when would you say? Was it, was it 1600s, 1800s? What, yeah. What, what, where, where, where did this term start to, start, start to pop up? Well, I would say it was in the later 1600s towards the end of the baroque period people started you know talking about uh you know larger and larger groups and you know in the in the baroque period really uh the groups only got as large as really just larger string ensembles with a few winds uh and it the the numbers really only started to really grow bigger when bigger halls actually started to be uh, started to be built and music started to be published, and so when when it was published, you know, with the printing with the really with the invention of the printing press, uh, and music was able to be published in large numbers quite easily, then symphonies started getting bigger and bigger uh, along with that. I would assume that that was around the same time where the conducting position decided to uh, spring out of action. The more people, uh, somebody needs to keep everybody together. Yeah, uh, you know, the uh, the famous story is about Jean-Baptiste Lully, who uh, famously stubbed his toe with, with a uh, something he was uh, trying to keep the beat with, a, a large stick, and... Uh, unfortunately contracted gangrene and and died from doing that because he was just trying to coordinate the various musicians there now you said that this came in the the later half of the the baroque you know the at the end of the baroque period beginning of the classical period i would assume uh johann sebastian bach didn't write any symphonies no i and, and as as a matter of fact uh, it was his sons, J.C. Bach, who wrote 
really the first proto symphonies and they were very very small works and very not like the standard four movement format that we see today uh very often they were very much like uh the german sets of dances that uh were pretty standardized uh during that day and and sometimes they would even be like uh the modern sonatas where there it's a, it's a three movement work where it's just fast slow fast um it wasn't until really haydn started writing symphonies when those those dances kind of coalesced into what the modern symphony is today and of course haydn is the inventor of the sonata allegro form which became the standard first movement of almost every symphony that was written after that now if you are a musician and and some of these words mean something to you uh that great um if you are not yet a musician and some of these words and terms that we're using are kind of uh out there for you don't worry uh we are going to be discussing all of these things on future episodes now you had mentioned the term sonata sonata allegro form Let, let's just kind of dive into that as we get into some of these pieces here because as you yeah. said it, it did start off fast slow fast, like a fast movement slow right. movement fast movement and and these weren't really long right like this wasn't like a Mahler symphony that was like 45 minutes per movement these were smaller right. things right yeah no as a matter of fact uh most of these symphonies were at the most 10 minutes long and part of that just had to do with the you know the the nature of composition at the time i mean there was uh you know i mean there were large works that were performed but they were usually related to large religious works that told a story and you know there were operas uh before uh in the broke era but they again they were they were telling a specific story so the music was extended if you were writing just what they called pure music the pieces just weren't very long at all, just in general. I would assume a lot of this also had to do with the lifestyle of the composers. I mean, Haydn had quite a bit of symphonies, didn't he? Whereas other composers like Beethoven had like nine. Well, and, you know, it just depended. Like Haydn, Haydn would write at the drop of a hat and would write very, very easily and was very amiable and and. Uh, you know, somebody said, would you write something for me? And, you know, he would, you know, take a couple of weeks and, you know, write a symphony. Um, Beethoven was, unfortunately, a, a rather tortured individual who really wrestled with every single note that he wrote, uh, despite the fact that he was an incredible improviser and, and could make up stuff with absolutely no problem. But and as you'll see, actually, the, the Fifth Symphony took quite some time uh, for him to write, and he was writing it along with lots of other things. Well, let's, let's dive into that one a little bit, right? Because the question is, Haydn has 104 symphonies. Mozart has uh, 41, I believe. Beethoven has nine. Dvorak, nine. Mahler has not. Ten, nine, nine and three quarters. Nine and three quarters, right? Schubert even wrote one that wasn't finished. What... What makes a symphony so special? I mean, these are things that I asked my teachers growing up of, you know, you have the entire range of music. Why on this program are we playing 
Schubert seven versus Schubert six versus Schubert. What makes a specific symphony so special? Well, I, I would say the symphony is special in general. I mean, the symphonies we were talking about earlier, you know, by J.C. Bach, Bach's sons, um, were they were called symphonies, but you know, really they were just extended pieces for a larger ensemble. Once you started getting into the Haydn and the Mozart and Beethoven and the bigger stuff, uh, it just becomes epic. And and once that form was standardized, where, I mean, we'll talk about Sonata Allegro form and, and just how that form influenced, well, pretty much everything, really. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, uh, once you got that form of, you know, Sonata Allegro form and then an adagio, a slow movement, uh, that was more like a song, and then a minuet slash scherzo movement, and then this rondo form last movement, something fast. Um, once that was there, it you began really telling huge stories that became long epics that people people just loved, and that's that's what I think makes a symphony special because. You can you can hold people's attention and really truly tell the story that you want to tell within that framework. Why, right? It's always the question, and this is something that I struggled both as a conductor, as a musician, and as a music lover. You know, we're going to talk today about some symphonies that are just music for for making music, and right. we're going to talk about some symphonies today that really have some historical um, chutzpah to it in the backgrounds. Right. When we're listening to a symphony. Do we have to listen for a story? Do we have to listen for emotion? Can we just go and close our eyes and kind of drift away? What should we be looking for in that music? This is the art of music after all, or art of listening. Art of listening, yeah. I mean, it's it's kind of all of those things and it really depends on what you're listening for. You know, I, I knew a musician, uh, a, a teacher, a great music teacher, who never liked to listen to Shostakovich. And the reason why she didn't like to listen to Shostakovich is because it always made her feel tense and nervous and sad all at the same time. And, you know, the fact is is that Shostakovich lived in Soviet era uh, Russia under Stalin, even, you know, even worse, not really Soviet era, you know, under Stalin. And he, you know, he was constantly being put upon by the government. And so his music really reflected that. So when you listen to Shostakovich, you're supposed to feel those things. And some people just don't like it. So, you know, and in that particular case very often you do make up a story in other cases uh like set you know if you're listening to satia jibnopadi um you know which we'll talk about on the program or if you're listening to uh philip glass or or somebody like that well no there is no story there you're just experiencing the sound that's there and everything in between 
let's dive in. We're going to talk about three different symphonies today. What makes them famous? What makes them tick? We're going to talk about Mozart. 40th symphony we're going to compare and contrast that to beethoven's fifth and then we're going to kind of go in a different direction yet still down that same train track with the ninth symphony from the new world of antonin dvorak and you know it's about- funny. So the um the what you know what we're going to do um is we're going to actually be looking at a history of how the symphony developed mm-hmm. just by looking at these three pieces well, let's take a look at that. Mozart, yeah. 40th Symphony. Um, you know, when you think of all the Mozart symphonies, uh, mostly, I think the, the, the majority of people might recognize the 40th, yeah. maybe the 41st, maybe. Well, um, maybe. But he died when he was 35, and he was a genius and a prodigy. So did it take him 40 tries to get it right? Or what yeah. is it about the 40th Symphony that's just so memorable? Well, I think... I, th- I think the tunes in particular are very memorable in general. You will you will remember the and find familiar the opening melody of the first symphony. Um, you know, we'll we'll take a listen to it, and when when you hear it, you'll instantly recognize it. Um, it's something that everybody would find familiar. Uh, the second movement, I think, would be less familiar to most people, but also just a, actually you would have feel it's familiar. It's been used on so many commercials um, that uh, it's something that you would also find familiar, um, as well as the last movement melody. So it's it's actually kind of gotten into the popular lexicon um all of these melodies well let's take a look here right because mozart's 40th symphony and and we're not going to have to dive too far into here but composed in 1788 yeah right Right. um wrote it in a minor key you know kind of artistic kind of darker in the sense uh Mm. certainly in juxtaposed to the 41st which is where they have that whole Mannheim rocket you know that whole upheim right, right, right. right? I remember going back to music school, right? But right. but really, it, it was you know it was written in Vienna, so it had an audience. Obviously, it was later in his life as he was going through here. Right. Um, what's your thought? I know you've played this. I know you've conducted this. You've certainly studied it, as so have I. Um, popular one for you, favorite one for you. What do you think, Mozart Forty? Oh, I mean, I think. Well, I. I think it's really interesting that first of all he didn't write it by commission uh he actually just wrote it and not only did he just write it he wrote it at the same time as the 39th and the 41st and there there are some people who think that those three pieces are actually kind of like one big piece and the part of the proof that they say for that is the fact that this particular piece has no introduction Mm. and very often the symphonies of the time and you know beethoven did this lots of different people uh did this throughout the history of the symphony the first movement before you really get going starts with an introduction uh something slower and this one has a one bar vamp and then you're going and it's, 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 it's three and a half beats of introduction. Exactly. And and you're you're it kind of sounds like you're in the middle of something and then you just go. So 
people say, okay, it's the second part of a big three symphonic work. And because of that, there's no introduction. I don't know if that's true or not. And, you know, we, Mozart wrote these symphonies in his head before, you know, before he actually put them down to paper. He, he rarely corrected himself. So that's one of the kind of more unusual things with that work is that, you know, there is no introduction. You're just going right into it. It's this minor key. It's very dark. He actually, in the, um, in the development section of the first movement, goes through almost every single key in order. Uh, and that's, you know, leading to yet another era of, of music, which, um, you know, leads directly in line to a composer named Schoenberg, who actually took those 12 notes and made them in, into a melody. And the, uh, you know, that's, that's kind of revolutionary, but it's, it's revolutionary in that sense. And it's revolutionary for Mozart because Mozart in general was really just a master of something that had already been established. He hardly did anything that changed the genre that much. And this symphony is kind of an exception to that. Rule. Let's take a look at this from a listening point of view with your eyes. If we look at the score, um, you know, oboe, flute, clarinet, bassoon, I'm a, you know, those are all in pairs. Standard, um, standard, standard, standard classical style. orchestra, right? Yeah. Um, was it two timpani or no timpani? What are we at here? No, no, um, no, wait, wait a minute. Not yes, on the first, there, not on the first page. No, no timpani, no timpani. Um, but uh but three horns it is yeah three horns which is which is also unusual and the mozart symphony mozart never wrote for what we call a full orchestra with trombones not in the symphonies he wrote he wrote for full symphonies in his choral works um but not not for symphonies and uh having three horns was you know just kind of unusual for the time not too big, right? Like th it, this would be uh, no. what would the, what would the string section be in Mozart's time? Like f six violins, six most yeah, six at the most six. It would be six first, six seconds, probably four violas, four cellos, a bass or two maybe. Um, the the it, it was big for the time, but not as nearly as big as symphonies were going to get. Like not even a hundred years later. Now, just in kind of closing here, you, we, we, you mentioned that 39, 40 and 41 were written together. I honestly, I don't think I could hum a tune from 39. I've, I've conducted 40 and 41 both. Right. Um, why 40? Why does it stand out? Why is it more commercial than the others? If you will. I, I think, I think the tunes are just more catchy, really. Um, they're more direct. It's it's also part of why the symphony is just different from every other Mozart symphony. Um, Mozart wrote um, he he wrote good tunes, but this kind of writing is just more direct than his other kinds of writing, and it stands out for that reason. Beethoven five probably without a doubt the most famous piece of music ever written, maybe second only to Star Wars. Um, 
I don't know. <laughs> Clear, clearly, you know, symphonic, bigger, yeah. um, adds a few extra instruments. We can talk about that. But uh, what are your what are your overall thoughts? Beethoven five, not not a bad piece. Oh, you know, I uh, he he did so many and really kind of the opposite of Mozart. Beethoven with each symphony did something that just completely changed the genre almost every time. And this, for instance, it's one of the first times when the, the germ of the symphony, the thing, the foundation that the whole thing is built on is something that's so small and so basic four notes that's it mm -hmm. and it's the first four notes that you hear and like i said before the you have four movements in a symphony that are separate works but at the same time sometimes they're related in this particular case they are completely and utterly related and they have everything to do with those four first four notes it is the soul of economy <laughs> that that first movement really is and it's not just that first movement right if you really take a look at the symphony as a full work yeah. those three notes that rhythm those intervals they show up in almost every single measure of the entire piece yeah I, you it, it's it's like an obsession really um on beethoven's part and it's and it interestingly uh also co completely in contrast with his next symphony which was just as revolutionary but for completely different reasons <laughs> the sixth symphony uh is known as one of the first tone poem program music type of pieces uh that was written in this form and uh has a, a completely different feel to it um also though on the other hand uh it is also very related to the fifth symphony in that the sixth symphony is based on a germ of very very small proportions just the first few measures of this of the sixth symphony everything is based on that well, I, I do remember hearing that they were both composed around the same time between 1804, 1808-ish. So it wasn't like Mozart who snapped his fingers and had three symphonies. I mean, Beethoven was thinking about this stuff. I know he was in the middle of losing the hearing, not completely yet, right. um, but it added a couple things, right? There was a trombone in here, wasn't there? Well, in so in the fifth symphony, uh, for the first time, uh, trombones enter and they enter in probably the most dramatic way possible. They don't come in in the Fifth Symphony until the very last movement. And the also for, I think, one of the first times, uh, the scherzo, which is in the, at this point generally the third movement of the symphonic form, um, doesn't end. It actually kind of devolves <laughs> into this transition that crescendos into the last movement it goes straight into the last movement and you know when the last movement starts because that is the moment 
when the trombones enter for the first time. They've been sitting there for about 20 minutes. And that's also <laughs> the same point where it becomes a major symphony, right? Isn't exactly. That, that's where the key change happens. It, that's where the key change happens. And and it's, it is very much goes from C minor and uh, he puts that Picardy third, which we'll also talk about at some point, um, on the entire last movement and makes it into C major. And it's very much going from the darkness into the light. It's an extraordinary moment. Well, speaking of Star Wars, let's go back to that. that you, you said scherzo, and, and Mozart didn't have a scherzo, did he? But was it Beethoven who decided to take the minuet dance and speed that sucker up a little bit? Well, I mean, it, you know, it the the minuet and the scherzo are directly related in terms of the form. There's a a certain uh, form in the music where you have, you know, the the A section and then the trio section, and then you go back to the A section, and it's always repeated. And those, in that way, they're both exactly the same. Um, but the minuet people started doing different stuff to the minuet until it became not really recognizable as uh, the same kind of dance. Minuet, uh, you know, being a dance, and if you push it up faster, then it becomes something that's more funny, or in other words, a scherzo. And there were different composers that fooled around with that kind of naming of of that particular movement and beethoven really grabbed a hold of it and i mean he wrote minuets in his symphonies but mostly it was scherzos and pretty much after beethoven it was almost always a scherzo you've conducted beethoven five many times probably more without the orchestra than with the orchestra in front of you um i i know it's it's the audition piece i've sweated on it many times i've i've and I've, I've, I've flubbished on it many times. Yeah. What is more difficult, being the conductor starting the fifth or being the orchestra with a conductor who's never started the fifth? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's I, I can tell you, be, having been on both sides of the equation, um, it's it's nerve wracking because you're you're trying to communicate something really, really difficult. And the orchestra is wondering, okay, and this is an, I should say, this is an orchestra with experience. I've actually been able to conduct this piece a couple of times with uh, youth symphonies who have never seen the piece before. And in, in a sense, actually, doing it with less experienced players is far easier than doing it with professionals because the professionals are actually expecting you to mess up and the the students you get to teach them how to do it so it's really that's, completely that's, the, that's the john lovitz of conducting i meant to do that yeah exactly <laughs> be, be, before we transition and go to our next piece here i want to talk about two places where I think Beethoven had it out for a horn player. In the first movement, there are two spots where everybody stops right. and the horn comes in. One yeah. sounds like a solo and the other one sounds like a, a, like the echo to the entire symphony. Right. You know where I'm talking about on both of these spots. Yeah. Is, is this a mistake? Is Beethoven messing with us? Did he did he scratch out? Did the, did the copywriter do something wrong or did he really meant to have that horn come in the wrong spot twice? Well, you know, it's it's funny because 
he has a tradition of doing that. Uh, the the third symphony is the first place that he does that, where the the horn comes out of the development section not only two measures too early, but uh, in the wrong key as well. <laughs> and um, so yeah, he he totally meant it, and is you know it's more. I, I wouldn't say he was more making fun. I mean, especially in the first movement, it's more of a, uh, you know, the traditional horn call uh, for the hunt than anything else. Um, but the, um, you know, I think, I think that he just liked to mess with horn players, you know? He also had a thing for oboe players in the fifth symphony, didn't he? Right. There's a very big solo there. And um, it was kind of unusual because, it, you know, the oboe was relatively new uh, to the symphony. A lot of Mozart symphonies, for instance, only a few years earlier, did not include the oboe, but included the clarinet. When, when the woodwind section got bigger, uh, it, you know, it usually had flutes. And then the next instrument they included a bass instrument which was the bassoon and so you had uh flutes and horns and bassoons and that was for a while kind of the standard for that and then they added clarinets after that and it really wasn't until much later that they added oboes we hope that you're enjoying this podcast. This is the art of listening. Every single week, we're going to be tearing apart different pieces, different genres, talking to different musicians about being a musician, conducting, maybe even get into some note reading and things that we can do here. And, you know, Gabe, we started talking about the fact that this is just a huge transition from Mozart to Beethoven. And as these composers are getting farther in the years, the orchestra is advancing. We... Yeah just mentioned that Beethoven 5 had an oboe solo and as the oboe got bigger it turned into an English horn and now we come to another famous symphony um, Dvorak's New World Symphony the one where the famous English horn solo is in it what are your thoughts about the New World Symphony well you know it's it's kind of amazing a lot of people don't realize that Dvorak actually wrote this in the United States Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it's why it's called the New World Symphony. It was the United States was considered still considered the New World at the time. And um, he Dvorak was the president of what the music school, the conservatory that became Juilliard uh, at the time. And he wrote the piece for the New York Philharmonic and the New York Philharmonic gave the world premiere of this work and as a matter of fact it was also performed in the very first concert at carnegie hall by the new york philharmonic um and you know all of this really i mean whenever i start thinking about this stuff i just start geeking out like tchaikovsky was at that concert where he heard the new world symphony for the first time because he was at carnegie hall conducting his own piece uh, a, a march, the march, uh, the the coronation march, and uh, it's you know just kind of amazing how Dvorak, who was what we call a nationalist composer, he was one of the first nationalist 
uh, composers to come out. And what, what I mean when I say nationalist is um, he was very, very interested in putting his own country, the, the Czechoslovakia uh, at the time, um, what is now known as the Czech Republic, and he was very interested in taking the folk tunes from his homeland and turning them into this Western classical music, what you know, what we call that. And when he wrote the New World Symphony, he wanted to do the same thing, but with American tunes that he had heard. And so it kind of has this flavor of American uh, American tunes that's different from the rest of his symphonies. And the other thing that it did was it put him on the international stage for the first time and made him famous. As you said, premiered at Carnegie Hall in December of 1893. It really wasn't that long ago. No, no, it really wasn't. What, what really I think is just so totally cool is that the New York Philharmonic, whenever you hear the New York Philharmonic perform that piece, you are hearing a ghost, really, of that first performance, of that really, truly authentic first performance, because symphonies and philharmonics don't change over, you know, like every year, like, say, a youth symphony does. Um, there are people who stay there for 40 or 50 years and they continue to play. So the sound of the symphony only changes gradually, very gradually over time. And they perform that symphony probably every single year of, since they first performed it. So that sound, that original sound still exists today whenever you listen to the New York Philharmonic perform it. And they have the original copies still sitting in their library. I, at some point, I'd love to take a look at that. <laughs> well, that is why we're here on The Art of Listening. And we would love to know what your favorite symphonies are. If you have any favorites, please reach out to us. Gabe, where can they go to learn more about the great stuff that you're doing and, and how they can appreciate The Art of Listening? Well, you can go to gabrielgordon.net. We'll have uh, some show notes from this podcast, uh, as well as some musical essays that I've written over there. And my, my YouTube channel is accessible from there. And if you just want to go to YouTube, you can go to Gabriel Gordon, The Art of Listening. And I have some, uh, some of our earlier stuff there, as well as some other musical essays and uh, some great music. We've talked about Mozart. We talked about Beethoven. We talked about Dvorak. I want to end with, with you. What are your th top three? And you can, of course, choose some of the ones that we've talked about tonight. But what, what's on Gabe's list? What are your top three symphonies to, to listen to? Huh. Wow. I mean, it, it, the, my, my standard answer really is you know, I'm my favorite symphony is whatever the one I'm working on right now. Um, I mean, you know, I, I've, I've got a, a whole library of scores of symphonies that I, I just love every single one of them. It's, it's really hard to pick. Um, I, I guess you could say I became a lover of symphonies in general when I first got into Mahler. And Mahler is probably one of my most favorite symphonic writers. Um, but, you know, if you're interested in Beethoven 5, okay, 
I would actually encourage you to listen to the other Beethoven symphonies. He wrote nine of them, and in particular, the ones that people don't know about, like uh, probably even even more than some of his other symphonies that he's written i love the fourth symphony it's hardly ever played and that opening introduction is it gives me chills every single time i conduct it or, or listen to that, it. that nice b flat chord that just rings yeah and and you know continues and then you know this really ominous thing coming from the strings i, I mean it's it's uh you know really foreshadowing some of his later stuff you know it is really foreshadowing and i remember you having this conversation yeah. it's foreshadowing the bassoon players going crazy at the end of the symphony right <laughs> that's right <laughs> i remember you having that conversation in a rehearsal of hey guys it's gonna that's get right. fun yeah <laughs> i know you think it starts slow but yeah come on, come on Ed. right <laughs> i know oh my funny. goodness well, that wraps up this first inaugural episode, uh, Opus One, as you will, of of the art of listening. We hope that you've enjoyed this. Please check out all the archives over at GabrielGordon.net. Check out the YouTube channel. Plenty of stuff out there. Um, please hit that subscribe button. Tell all your friends if they're music listeners, music lovers, composers, conductors, performers. This is going to be a brand new podcast for you guys. We're going to be doing things just a little bit differently, uh, both here on our audio and also on our YouTube channel. And you know what? If you're into creating some great materials for your students, especially your violin students, we've got some great things over on that YouTube channel. So check it out. We'll let you have, we'll talk a little bit more about that next time. Gabe, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been great having you here. I really, really enjoyed it. I look looking forward to the next one, Jeff. Excellent. So that wraps up this episode of The Art of Listening. On behalf of Gabe and everybody here, my name is Jeff Bradbury. Take care and enjoy the music.